turn a corner after this, okay, and, uh, and move on. But what we have been talking about in Romans 1, 2, and 3 is how mankind is just broken. We are in trouble, and it's all because of sin. And so God does a perfect job, of course, of revealing to us exactly how terrible our condition really is in Romans 1, 2, and 3. And this will be the last uh, part of Scripture that we'll see on this subject. Next week in our Spring Bible Conference, we will also be dealing with kind of the culmination and, and the application of that. And boy, I really encourage you to come and to be a part of that if you can, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Uh, you know, rearrange your schedule however you think you need to, but it'll be well worth your time. Today, as we finish this up, and we are in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. It doesn't finish chapter 3 because in, chap- in verse 21, it kind of begins the next section, and we'll see that in due time. But in, in this section right here, by the time we get to verse number 20, you'll begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Okay, it, talking about sin and man's wickedness and God's judgment has kind of been a little bit of a dark tunnel, okay? But there's a light emerging, okay? And, and the light at the end of the tunnel is not a train coming at us. It is the light at the end of the tunnel. We are absolutely turning the corner coming on the end of this. And, and, and really, the way we're going to see it is this way. I, I, have, I want to start out with a question for you today, and I don't know if maybe you have ever heard somebody say something like this to you, and it goes like this. Whatever is good to you is not always good for you. Has anybody ever said some version of that to you? What what is good to you is not always what's good for you, and, and vice versa, right? In other words, the things that we enjoy are not always the things that are helpful for our lives right? I mean, it's common today that people don't want to hear the things that they need to hear. People want to hear what they want to hear, right? And, and that is ever more true than probably ever before. You know, uh, the things that are good to us, so, so take a very simple example. I like M&Ms. Those are good to me. M&Ms be very, very good to me. <laughs> They're not good for me. Right? Okay, so, but if we're talking about diet or something like that, we get, okay, I get it, right? There's things that I enjoy, they're not good for me, okay, we get that. But what if we apply that to our behavior? What if we know somebody who is engaged in some socially reckless behavior? I mean, maybe it's drugs or alcohol. Maybe it's some level of promiscuity or criminal behavior. And they're risking harm to themselves. They're risking harm to others. If we just kind of sit by and act like it's okay, in other words, if we are good to them at the moment, it may not necessarily be good for them that we never help them understand the recklessness of their choices, right? And, and so this is kind of what we're dealing with. Today, we're going to see this issue, and, and we're calling it tough love. Uh, that's our title today, tough love. Now, that expression became popular because of a book that was written by Dr. James Dobson 
uh, some decades ago called Love Must Be Tough. And, and really what it deals with is that sometimes it's necessary to say and to do things that are not pleasant now in the short term so as we can help to really be helpful for the other individual later in the long term. And so with that decision to be tough while loving, what we do is we risk personal rejection, don't we? We put ourselves on the line saying, look, I'm going to tell you something that's going to be hard to hear, but, but it's good for you. You, you need to hear this. We, we risk them cutting off our friendship. We risk them just dismissing us altogether. And that's not pleasant. Nobody likes that. And so what happens is the pressure of the society comes to where frequently we just don't say anything. But is that really loving? I mean, is it really not more loving to risk personal rejection or to risk some alienation because you really care enough about the other person to try and lead them to true healing, true help? Is that not really caring and loving? Of course it is. And as we finish this section of the book of Romans, really what we see is that God continues this strategy of telling to us honestly the hard truths. But at the end, as we'll see in our second point today, ultimately he, gives, he starts to give us a hint as to why he has been doing all this. You've got to understand, God doesn't give us three chapters worth of detailed description of our level of evil just because he likes pointing it out. He doesn't do it because he's on some ego trip and he wants just to show us how much better he is than us. We got that. That's not the reason why he does that. God does what he does for our own good. He loves us enough to tell us the hard truths so that we can ultimately make good decisions that will benefit us in the long run, the long run being without end, forever in eternity. And so he cares enough to do that. It's, it's tough to hear, but it is indeed loving, right? And so that's our prayer for you. Okay, our prayer for all of you is that if you hear a hard truth today, if you hear something that is not immediately just warm and fuzzy and, you know, teddy bears and lollipops and all that kind of stuff, maybe you'll understand that the spirit behind it is, is that God is trying to care enough about you to help you understand how you can deal with that. So let's just go to him in prayer. Let's ask him to do that, and we'll look at the Scripture. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we are indeed thankful uh, for the truth that you tell us in your word, and even the hard truth, because we know that you love us. And I, and I pray, God, that even as this is the last of these messages that we'll have on this particular subject, I, I pray that you would use it. I want to pray specifically for that one individual who's here today and is really struggling, and maybe nobody else knows, but deep in his or her heart, boy, it's just been a storm. And they may not even fully understand how it worked out that they're here today. Maybe they come regularly, maybe they're here for the first time. Whatever the case might be, Lord, you brought them here for a reason so that they could understand that although sometimes truth is hard to hear, man, it's, it's love. 
And it's like a blanket. You want to wrap around them and let them know, hey, there is an answer. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, and it's all about Jesus. And I pray, God, that you would change that life today. I pray that you would teach us your word. I pray that you would help us all to see life as you see it. And we pray in Christ's name. All right, let's look together in Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read for you. Please follow along, starting in verse number 9. We're going to go to verse number 20. What then? Are we better than they? And let me just stop there for just a second. In the running context of what we have seen, we have just seen God talk about his judgment toward the Gentile nations, the godless pagan nations, And then it switches to the Jews. And last time we saw in the first part of chapter 3 that the Jews were asking, what advantage is it to be a Jew if we're going to be judged just like the Gentiles? And so the we is the Jewish people and the they are the Gentile people. That is the context of that statement. That's just enough to describe where we're at. What then? Are we Jews better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, in chapter 2, both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. It's a tough list. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty Before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Okay, with this before us, the first section that we're going to look at is the majority of those verses. It includes that long list that we just read, verses 9 to 18, and and the point is going to be described as the hopelessness of man's sinful nature. The hopelessness of man's sinful nature. Now, many of you already understand this, but in the event that there are those who don't yet understand it, the Bible is very clear that we as human beings are not sinners only because we choose to sin. In other words, we would call that sinning by commission. We, we decide that that's what we're going to do, and we make bad choices, and we blow it. We sin. That is true, but it's not the only truth. Because there's also the truth that we are sinners because the very nature of sin is passed on to us at birth. And so we sin by commission, but we also sin by constraint. I'm constrained to do so. I can't but sin at times because there is a very nature within me that is sinful and drives me to make bad choices. Romans chapter 5, if you flipped over a page or two, you would see in verse number 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man, referring to Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. This nature of sin that came into the human race at the time of that first sin with Adam and Eve, 
is now passed generation after generation after generation to all men. In the beginning, it talks about how God created everything, and when he created man, it says he created him in his own likeness, in his own image. Then Adam falls, and he loses this image of God, and when Adam and Eve finally have children of their own, in Genesis chapter 5, we see that their children are made in their fallen, sinful nature, likeness, image. And so all human beings inherit this sin nature, like it says in Romans 5 and verse number 12. Isaiah 53, that great passage in the Old Testament referring to Christ's crucifixion, in verse number 6, the first part of that verse says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And so the reality of that all-inclusive statement is that, and, and, I, and this is, we think about this, and, and we may agree or not agree. I just want to think about the fact, even that means that even those precious little babies, those gifts of God, when God delivers them to our families, and we're so thankful for them, and they're so precious and innocent and good, according to the scripture, they also have within them the very nature of sin. And as they begin to grow, every parent knows, all joking aside, you don't have to teach kids to sin. You have to teach them not to, right? Because it comes very naturally, because it is in them. And we can make jokes and we can do whatever we want, but the truth of the matter is, is that kid does something wrong. Did you do that? Nope, I didn't do it. They'll lie. I mean, it, we all do that, okay? And, and they deceive, and they're ridiculously selfish, and the world is only about them, and they demand you whenever they want you to do whatever they want you to do. It's all a part of that nature, okay? That's what they have. So the Bible says, for example, just to reinforce this in Proverbs 22 and verse number 6, train up a child in the way he should go. The child won't learn how he should go if you don't train him to know how he should go. We have to teach them not to sin because the sin comes natural. If you went a little further down in that chapter in verse number 15, it says foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. And it never leaves us. It never leaves us. It's bound in all of us. So we go back to Romans chapter 3, and in verse number 9 it starts off, and it says that all are under sin. We are under it. It is the very nature. We, we are constrained by it. We cannot get past the fact that it is the actual nature that we have inherited, not just the deeds that we do. Therefore, when you go into verses 10, 11, and 12, it says that there's none righteous. No, not one. They're all gone out of the way. Together become unprofitable. None that doeth good. No, not one. The emphasis just comes over and over. Please do not be confused. It is not in our nature to be good. It is in our nature to be bad. And it's not most of the people, only the very extreme sinners. No, all of us, every single one of us in the eye of God are sinful because of our nature. That is a hard truth. That's tough to swallow. That does not just make you want to wake up and, you know, chirp with the birds in the morning. I mean, that is something that God reveals to us for our own good. In fact, I would offer for you that if it weren't God saying it, 
you might be inclined to argue that it's not true. But because God said it, we're like, okay. Let's just go on a little further. Matthew chapter 7, verse number 11. If ye then, Jesus says, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? I just want to point out the fact that Jesus Christ characterizes mankind as evil. That's the category we are in. If ye, humans, being evil, can still do some good things, certainly I will do even better things. Don't worry about that. But the category that we are in is we're of a sinful nature. Therefore, even our very best deeds are garbage. And that's what we looked at last week quickly in Isaiah 64 and verse 6. But we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Again, if it weren't God saying that, I think we'd disagree. We'd say, look, humanity does some good things. There are people that selflessly sacrifice and help and serve and encourage and build up others. And God says, yeah, but you're comparing yourself among yourselves, and that's not wise. We are comparing now what I see to perfect holiness. And we just don't have it. We, we couldn't possibly come close. The very best is a filthy rag. It's the very best that we got. So the rest of the stuff is worse than that. So understanding that, and the Bible's very clear about that. Isn't it just ridiculous that man would have the audacity to try and stand before God and justify himself? Or to try and justify his sin before God somehow. But because of our sinful nature and our inherent wickedness, we do that. We do that. We try and somehow justify like it's okay. But the truth of the matter is, is that before a holy God, we left to ourselves. Okay, Jesus ultimately offers us salvation, and that's the great news coming. But for now, we're just dealing with the the hopelessness of man's sinful nature. There is no hope. Left to ourselves, the very best that we could do in religious deeds or humanitarian deeds, charitable deeds, is not enough. It's not enough. And God makes it very, very clear that that's the case. I want you to check out what God says in Mark chapter 7. When we think about how we're broken, when we think about how we are By very nature, we are evil. We are defiled. Let's see Jesus talk about that in Mark chapter 7. In verse 15, it says, There's nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. They were arguing about, hey, your disciples don't wash their hands before before they eat, and the law says they should do that, and they defile themselves because they don't wash their hands before they eat or something like that, and all that maybe gross, that, you know, hey, Jesus says that's not what really defiles a man. He says, but the things which come out of him, those are they that defile him. He goes down to verses 20 to 23, and he said, that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. 
That's not all that different from the list we just read in Romans 3. A lot of those things are mentioned in the list in Romans chapter 3 because it's already inside of us. Eventually, it's got to just kind of come out. So my question for you is, what do you suppose the most effective way is for all of this evil that's inside of us to come out? What would be the easiest possible way to put on display the evil that's inside of us? Well, the first easy way to see that is in what we say. It's what we say. And four separate occasions are mentioned in verses 13 and 14 that deal with your mouth. Their throat is an open sepulcher. A sepulcher is a grave. So in other words, coming out of your mouth are things that associate with death, not life. Things that destroy. With their tongues they have used deceit. Deceit, lies, misrepresentations, manipulations. The poison of asps is under their lips. Poison causes harm. Poison causes injury. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Those are different. To be bitter is fairly clear, right? We're, 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 we're envious, we're angry, and we say things in that nature. Cursing is not just using foul language. Cursing is pronouncing a curse, okay? And I don't want to offend anybody's sensibilities. We're in church this morning. But there's a lot of people out there cursing. When they use a word spelled D-A-M-N, whether you put God's name in front of it or not, everybody is doing that. This D thing, you know, God D this to that. You know how it goes. And people are literally, they're cursing Things and people and situations and, and life, maybe, is messed up worse than it needs to be because maybe God's answering those prayers. They call God's name, they call out a curse, and stuff's messed up. Our mouths are full of that stuff. I want to draw your attention to another very well-known passage of Scripture that deals with this. It's in James chapter 3. If you'll look there with me, we're going to just read quickly. It's very self-explanatory, but it's very descriptive. And I want you to see how this defilement, this evil, this cursing comes out of our mouths. In chapter 3, we're going to read the first 10 verses. Just, just kind of listen. My brethren, be not many masters or, or teachers, in other words, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. A teacher is somebody who uses words to instruct others. You better be careful because you will be judged on your words. Verse 2, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. 
And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is, on, is set on the fire of hell. For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith we bless God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. And so, I've often thought of it this way. You really got to watch out for your tongue. Because the tongue exists in a place that is wet and it is likely to easily slip. <laughs> I mean, you know, careful, the floor is wet. You might slip and fall if you're at a department store or something like that. Yeah, well, where the tongue resides, it's always wet. And it's the first thing that's going to go. It's the quickest, easiest way to reveal the evil that is inside all of us. The second way that we see described is what we do. And I think they're put in that order for a reason because, face it, we typically say way worse things than we ever really do. You can argue whether you meant it or not, but we, we say things pridefully, arrogantly. We say things, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll tell you what I wish would happen. And we don't do all those things, thankfully. But we do some things. And so there's two specific references in the next couple of verses. It says their feet are swift to shed blood. And I know, you're thinking, phew, I haven't done that one yet. That's good. Well, okay, you know, maybe not death, murder. Jesus does clarify that if you are angry with your brother without a cause, that you've already committed murder in your heart. And how many times, honestly, that have we thought, I'd just like to kill that guy. And for just a split second, you'd never do it. you never do it. But for a split second, you're thinking, if somebody could get away with it, that'd be all right. <laughs> yeah, our, our feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, the path of your life. And the way of peace have they not known. The peace that they're talking about is the peace of God. In Romans 5, verse number 1, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we, people who are saved, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the way of peace, we're talking about lost people here. They, they don't understand that. Their, their ways don't know peace. And, and you go back to the list in Romans 3 and verses 10, all the way down through verse 18, these are all quotes from the Old Testament, and I have the references for you, and we'll look at them just very, very quickly. And as we look at them, you'll see how they do line up exactly with every one of those points from Romans uh, 3.10 all the way down to 18. They come straight quotes from the Old Testament. The thing I want you to see is the context of each one, okay? So in verses 10 through 12, because it says, as it is written, and then they all come all the way down. Verses 10 through 12 come from Psalms 14, 1 to 3. 
It says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looketh down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. This entire psalm, by the way, is repeated in Psalm 53. But the context is the wicked. The context is God's ultimate judgment on the wicked in the Old Testament. Verse number 13 comes from Psalm chapter 5 and verse number 9. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Again, the context has to do with the wicked and God's judgment of them. The next one may be even worse. In Psalm 140 and verse number 3, they have sharpened their tongues like a serpent. Adder's poison is under their lips, Selah. And literally, the context in Psalm 140 deals with the Antichrist. In verse number 14 in Romans, it comes from Psalms 10, verse number 7. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. Again, the context of Psalms 10 is the Antichrist. Verses 15 to 17, Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. Their feet run to evil and make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. Again, the wicked in their judgment. And I brought to your attention Proverbs 14 and verse number 12, a verse you may be familiar with that says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You see, a man has an idea of what ways seem to be okay for me, and God's just saying, yeah, but the end of that road, it's death. You don't know the way of peace. You need to know the way of peace. You need to know how you can have peace with God. And ultimately, in verse 18, it comes from Psalm 36 and verse 1. The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart, that there is no fear of God before his eyes. And again, the context is the Antichrist. No fear of God whatsoever before his eyes. And so in this idea of no fear of God, I would argue that that last statement, no fear of God, is the ultimate source of all of the other problems. If there is no fear of God, then all bets are off. If there's no fear of God, then anything else can possibly happen, and you shouldn't be surprised. So when there is no fear of God, what we'll see is there's also no wisdom. Because in Proverbs chapter 9 and verse number 10, the Bible says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the holy is understanding. And not only is there no wisdom, there's no knowledge you say, what's the difference? Well, I'll tell you in a second. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse number 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Knowledge typically is the most elementary level of gaining information. Understanding is how to process that information within the context it is given, and wisdom is the ultimate application of that understanding in your life. Okay, so maybe I should have started with knowledge before I put wisdom. But without the fear of the Lord, you get none of that. And the Bible says in several places, a couple of which we've seen already, the fool is the one who says, there is no God. 
So if you ever meet anybody who just totally rejects the concept of God, they could be a PhD scholar and, and highly recognized in their field of study. According to God, they are foolish because fools, not just to be derogatory, a fool is somebody that lacks knowledge and understanding and in the context of the things that really matter, of the things of the Lord. Because there's a way that seemeth right unto that man, but the end of his path will be death. What good will all that education do him if he lives forever separated from God in a place of real flames and torment called hell? So, as we look at our society, you know, the root of all of the social problems that are so evident around us, it's not a lack of education. It's not. People want to talk about, you know, if we just educate the people, then we'll do better. No, that's not the answer. The root of all the real social problems that we experience is the lack of the fear of God. People don't fear God, therefore they don't even gain knowledge. They don't ever gain wisdom, instruction, understanding. They can't possibly put those things into practice. It's not just knowing. You have to fear God and understand accountability and understand there will be a judgment and understand that you have already failed and understand that you need help and Christ lives his life through you. And so, rather than just investing in endless social programs, and I, and I think we should help people, the way to save the world is one human being at a time giving their heart and their life to Jesus Christ and growing in their faith and they living out the Christian values every day in the society in which we live. So that's our strategy. That's the way it works. If you go back in our nation's history, pick a round number, 50 years. Before 50 years, generally speaking across the board, the United States of America was a nation of people who feared God. Not totally. But there was a great majority of people that if you talked about the Lord, if you pulled out a Bible, if you said something about the Lord says, even people who didn't surrender their hearts to the Lordship of Christ, they would stop and respectfully listen. They would talk about God with reverence, even if in their heart they didn't really make that choice for themselves. But in the last 50 years, America as a whole has kind of dumped God and the Bible. And so what do we see? We see all the wrong things growing at catastrophic rates. Murders, STDs, crime. All the problems that we have in, in our society that have grown, grown just out of control have really grown in the last 50 years since we've kind of said no thanks to God. And so our present condition as human beings, it's hopeless. It's hopeless. And that's a hard truth. But it's not without love. Because our second point, and the thing I want you to see, is the, pur the purpose of God's law. Okay, man's condition is hopeless, but God's law has a purpose. And it's ultimately for our good. Now, when the Bible uses the term the law, there are various applications that it refers to, okay? But, but most frequently, the law refers to the law of Moses. And when we talk about the law of Moses, we're talking about the first five books 
of your Bible that were written by Moses, okay? And those first five books are typically referred to as the Pentateuch, or the Torah. And so those first five books of Moses most frequently are the law, okay? And, and that phrase, the law, sometimes it encompasses the totality of the Old Testament. And when it encompasses the totality of the Old Testament, usually it adds on to it the prophets. So you kind of break two general categories of all of the Old Testament into the law and the prophets. And what we see is that term, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets, referred to in the New Testament as a reference to the totality of God's word, which at that time would have only been the Old Testament. And so back in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, which we will begin later as we pick up this study a little later after Easter, it says, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So we see this term, the law and the prophets, and it's in many places. So I gave you a few examples. Matthew 7 and verse number, number 12. We saw verse number 11 earlier. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. We would kind of say that that's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. For this is the law and the prophets. In other words, this is the message of God's word. That's what he's saying. Matthew eleven thirteen. For all the law and the pro- for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Christ, who was the introduction to the New Testament. All the prophets in the law lead up to John. So the law and the prophets are the Old Testament. Matthew twenty two and verse number forty, talking about the great commandment in the law: love God, love your neighbor. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So if you want to just summarize the first five books of the Bible, or all the Old Testament really, it can just be summarized in a general statement, love God, love your neighbor. And by the way, if we just did that, it'd solve a lot of problems, wouldn't it? (laughs) It'd solve a lot of problems. We're not going to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 17 is that famous story where Jesus Christ is on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and they're praying, and the guys fall asleep. Go figure. Jesus is then transfigured into his glorious second coming form. And then the guys wake up, and they look, and they see Jesus, and there's two figures together with him on the mountain. Who are they? They are Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And just like it said, attested to, they are witnessed by Jesus Christ's second coming glory is witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's witnessed by the totality of the Old Testament revelation. That's the message he's trying to communicate in Matthew 17 when Jesus is transfigured. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. So we're talking about God's law. We're going to see this in a second in verse number 19. When we talk about the Old Testament law, understand this also. A little bit, this is all just a little bit of background. It basically breaks into two categories. There's ceremonial law and there's moral law. The ceremonial law is the part that was done away in Christ. They were pictures and types that ultimately are fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. These, these would have to do with the sacrifices and the killing of the animals and the ceremonial washings and the clean and the unclean foods and, and how to deal with all these situations of life that deal with various degrees of holiness and forgiveness. 
and walking with God. Those were ceremonial. Those are the things that thankfully we do not have to continue to do. We don't have to bring a lamb to Jerusalem. We don't have to put blood on the doorpost. We don't have to do all of those things that the Old Testament Jew had to do. Those were ceremonial law. They were serious back then. They are not any longer required for us today. But the moral law continues on forever. And God's moral law is most accurately depicted for us in the Ten Commandments. Okay? Exodus chapter 20. And most everybody can recall at least a few of those Ten Commandments, right? But you don't have any other gods, right? You don't have any graven images. You don't take the name of the Lord in vain. You keep the Sabbath day holy. The only one of the ten, by the way, that is not literally to be applied in the New Testament. Another day's Bible study. Honor your parents, don't kill, commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. Those are the big ten. So with the exception of the Sabbath day, and it can be argued that we should have a time for resting, but the, but the strict adherence to Saturday as a day off, you're in trouble if you do anything on Saturday. That, that's not for the New Testament church. But the other nine, of course, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't covet, adultery, fornication, idols, love God. Listen. All of that continues today. That's God's moral law. And by the way, we break all of them because we are sinners by nature. And in case you in your mind think, I don't break all of them. Well, let me just give you James 2.10 and then this will just put an end to it. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. So, you know, look, we just, dumb and dumber, bad and worser. I mean, we're just, it's bad. It's just not good. All right, back to Romans, verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, now we know what we're talking about. It saith to them who are under the law. Why? That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. What is the purpose of God's law? The purpose of God's law is that every mouth may be stopped. We talked a little bit about this last time. The idea is this. When the sinner stands before God, he arrogantly tries to justify himself. He arrogantly tries to pass off the excuse, it's somebody else's fault. I was born this way. My, my, my mom and dad abused me. I didn't get the word of God. God, you gave this woman to me. That's why I sinned. I mean, there's just a myriad of excuses. And God ultimately pronounces his law clearly. And the sinner ultimately says, yeah. My damnation is just. There's nothing more I can say. The law is given to stop the mouths of the unbelievers. The law is given, secondly, that all the world may become guilty before God. By the way, the, the world is already guilty before God. But really, it's that all the world may recognize their guilt before God. The law demonstrates in such a clear way that when you see it, you're like, Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's me, too. That's me, too. So we're already guilty. We just need to recognize our guilt. And you go down to Romans 3, verse 20, for the third one. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. So even if you did your best to try and keep the law, you can't possibly do it because your nature is sinful. So it's impossible for you to do enough good things to make your way to heaven. You say, I do mostly all good things and just a few bad things. God certainly will understand. He certainly will let me into heaven. If that's your opinion, congratulations. You're in the vast majority of human beings on the planet. You just happen to be wrong. Because God says that that's not the way it works. That you have to understand that you're hopeless and just surrender to him and let him give you the free gift 
of eternal life. That's what separates Christianity from every other world religion, period. So the third thing is, by the law is the knowledge of sin. God's Holy Spirit, working through God's Holy Word, serves to convince men that they are sinful. By the law is the knowledge of sin. The Holy Spirit of God has this specific ministry in the world toward all human beings before their salvation. John 16, 7 through 11. Jesus says this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you, disciples, that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, here's what he'll do. He will reprove, convince, convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. That's the job of God's Holy Spirit. He is searching this whole world and he is trying to draw men. He is trying to get their attention and he wants to use the word of God ultimately. If they will respond to God's general revelation, he will get them his specific revelation. And he will show us all what we have seen for seven long weeks that we're hopeless. If you, friend, have come to God with any other attitude then I am useless and hopeless, Lord, please just forgive me. If you had any other attitude in your mind when you thought you were praying to ask Jesus to give you eternal life, you may not have had the right attitude. You may need to make sure that you get it right. Because that's, that's the deal. That's what he's asking us for. If you flip a page or two to Romans chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, we see a similar thing. It says, Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. The question is then asked, Was then that which is good made death unto me? If it's so good, why is it killing me? God forbid. But sin, notice, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment, the law, might become exceeding sinful. You see, when we see God's law, when we see his ultimate perfect holy standard, unattainable, when we see that, our sin appears before us. When we see that, our sin becomes exceeding sinful. In other words, we look at it and we're like, oh, that really is gross. I didn't think it was so bad until now I realize how bad it really is, according to God. If you went up a few verses in Romans 7, I listed it second. Verse number 7 says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. And so it's similar to chapter 3 and verse 20. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Why is God busting our chops so hard about this sin thing for all these chapters? Because you must understand who we really are before God. So that, as we turn the corner in verse 21 and to the end of chapter 3, and all through chapters 4 and 5, we understand how we can be justified by faith. And how Jesus Christ is the only person who ever lived as a human being with zero sin. And he was therefore the only one who possibly could have died in our place because he had no sin debt of his own that needed to be paid. 
If I were so noble as to say, I will take all of your sin, I will go to hell a million times just so that you all can be free, that might sound very noble, but I am incapable of pulling that off. Only Jesus Christ can do that, and he did that. And he offers it to us all as a free gift. And we turn a hard corner at verse number 21 when we come back, and it is good news moving forward. But I'm going to tell you something. If you don't understand the first part, if you don't get the tough part, you don't really get the love part. God loves us enough to tell us the hard truths so that we will finally be broken, so that we finally understand how broken we already are, might be a better way to say it. And we just surrender, and we give in, and we let him be the Lord. That's what the law exists to do. We need to be rescued. The last verse of Scripture I want to show you is Galatians 3, 21 to 24. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe, not that do, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Do you see how God uses his word? Do you see how God loves us enough to give us bad news that has good news coming later? Have you ever had somebody come to you and say, I got good news and bad news, which do you want first? I always want the bad news first. I don't know about you. I want to end up on a good note, right? And that's kind of what God does here. He gives us the bad news first so that now we are prepared to receive the wonderful, the greatest news ever. But so many people are deceived into thinking that I grew up in church, I'm religious, I'm a pretty good guy. And somewhere in their minds, they think that that's right, that's okay, and it's not right, it's not biblical. And many of those people will find themselves in that category that ultimately stand before the Lord in judgment, and they say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these wonderful works in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. And you're thinking, what? I've been a member of First Baptist Church for 45 years. Yeah, that was never the deal, though. The deal was you never really surrendered. You never really turned from your sin. You never really just gave up and just said, Jesus, I can't. Will you please just come and save me? Please rest. It's like like you're drowning. Please rescue me. That's the way it works. True salvation, eternal life, y'all, is a big deal. Amen? You gotta get it right. There's only one way, and it's Jesus. It's not religion, it's not good works. There's only one way. All of your church attendance and friendly, neighborly, that's all, that that makes society nice. It does not earn you favor in eternity. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's what we have to do. It's full surrender. You beg for forgiveness. But you will never beg for forgiveness unless you are convinced that there's no hope for you left to yourself. I'm so thankful. I understood that 
30 years ago, and I only had to hear it once, and I got it. Some people need to hear it more. It doesn't really matter. If you hear it today, God is just, his heart breaks for you. He has done this to help you. It's tough love. Our first point is tough. (laughs) The second point begins to turn the corner on love. So don't be upset that God speaks so negatively about man's condition. Because like a caring physician, he tells you the truth, and then he offers you the cure. What I just can't understand is that people get mad about the truth and reject the cure. Can you imagine? You go to the doctor and he gives you that terrible news that nobody wants to hear. You have some terminal disease, you have cancer, you have something. And he says, but hey, you know what? We just, we, there's a new cure that just came out and, and listen, it's been proven and we're, we're gonna offer it to you. And you're like, I cannot believe you told me I had cancer. <laughs> you could keep your stinking cure. No, nobody would ever do that. But people do it with Jesus all the time. It's crazy. It's crazy. The fool has said in his heart (laughs) stuff like that. I want to offer you an invitation. And the invitation is just very simple. Are you sure that you're born again? You may be very religious. You may have been in church all your life. Are you really sure? Listen, are you so sure that you're willing to bet your eternity on it? Because that's what it's all about. Don't be embarrassed. If for some reason you think, man, you know what? I'm nervous. I'm now nervous. Well, why don't you just get it right today? God's invitation to you is one of love. To just surrender it all. And what will happen is, not only will you receive the gift of eternal life, but he will begin to give you a power for living That it's not you that has to live the Christian life anyway, it's God living through you as you continue to live a life of surrender. If you haven't embraced that yet, would you embrace that today? Would you be willing to do that? Let's close our eyes and pray together. And in so doing, I want to ask you a question. I do this every week. I, I mean it every week, and I mean it today. If you are here and you would say, that's me, Jeff, I don't care if this is your first time. I don't care if this is your hundredth time. I don't care if you've been coming here all your life. You know what? Today is the day I need to just surrender it all. I'm not sure I ever really did that. And could I get a little bit of lights up in the balcony? Because I want to see if anybody's going to respond. If that's you, and you would just say, honestly, pray for me. I'm not sure I'm saved, but I want to be today. Would you just raise your hand? Just raise it and hold it up. I got some folks in the back. I got some folks in the front. Anybody else? Anybody upstairs? I just want to pray for you, understanding. Somebody in the balcony, too. God bless you for being honest. Somebody here, too. Thank you so much. Nobody's looking around, and nobody's going to bug you. I see you. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Just pray. Just pray for me. I want to be, I want to surrender my heart to him the right way today. Anybody else? Just pray for me. Amen. Thank you. I'll pray for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us. God, you are love, and you demonstrate love, and you communicate love in tough ways sometimes. And honestly, these three chapters, even as the pastor of this church, it's been weary for me to over and over and over again, week after week, emphasize how bad we are. Lord, I'm so evil, it bothers me to hear it, and I already knew it. I'm so thankful for these precious souls who today are saying, man, I, 
I want to get this right. I don't know what they had been trusting in. It doesn't matter. Today is the day they are going to acknowledge, Lord Jesus, I got nothing. I agree with you. I give up. I'm tired of running my own life. I'm tired of being the one who's in charge. I'm tired of calling the shots. It's not working. Please come and forgive me. I give it all to you. Just wash me. Forgive my sins. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Give me new life. And Lord, I'm not much, but whatever I got, I give it to you. I surrender it all. And I commit to follow you and to do whatever it is you tell me to do. I have no idea what that means. Whatever it means, I'll do it. Lord, I also want to pray for those that would know that they truly surrendered all. They would know that they're saved. But you know, in the course of life, maybe they decided to take the reins back and take over their own life for a while. Maybe it's not going so great. In fact, when we do that, it never goes great. Maybe today would be the day that they would just renew their commitment to you. That today would be the day they would just once again say, Lord, I, I surrender all. I give it all to you. Because really, when I'm in charge, I just blow it. Please, Lord, just let your Holy Spirit flood this place, flow through us, and just flood our hearts with the love that you have given us. And let us, Lord, just truly demonstrate the reality of what we just prayed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand up, everybody. You can see that the worship team is here. We're going to sing another song. We're going to receive our offering, so please be faithful with